The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Come on, let's get into it. 1 Samuel chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it up to the text. If you're online with us, you can click the Bible link uh, tab on the online platform. 1 Samuel chapter 1, you can open a phone or a tablet. We'll be reading out of the English Standard Version if that helps you. But 1 Samuel 1 is where we're going to be. And as Eric already talked about, uh, today I'm going to talk about parenting. I want to talk about parenting. Uh, uh, Specifically, how do we parent? How do we biblically parent children? How do we, I mean, really, how do we even know if we are? Like, how do we even know how we're doing? This is a hard thing to gauge if you're parenting well or if you're not parenting well, because everybody's got an opinion on this stuff. Some people will come up to you and be like, oh, no, you got to read Baby Wise. Baby wise is the way to go. And then somebody else in the same conversation be like, no, 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 no. Love and logic is the preferred method. Like you need to do that if you love your children, right? Like, and it's, and there's hundreds of books and there's blogs and there's articles and there's methods and there's conferences and there's all these different ways to parent. So how do we actually biblically parent our children? And the scripture uh, in in the book of Psalms, the Psalms, uh, they, they say that children are like arrows, in a quiver, you know, like arrows, you're pulling out an arrow. Um, And and that's a lovely metaphor. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. That's a nice thought. Uh, But but how do you know if you're aiming at the right target with the arrows? Or even if maybe your aim is true and you've got the right target, what what happens if you release that arrow and a gust of wind blows that arrow off course? Like that's a lovely image, but But there's questions about this. So today we're going to try and talk about parenting. And and just to get going, I just want you to know, I'm not an expert here. Like I am, am, this is like a player trying to coach, right? This is like a player trying to to say, yeah, this is how you should run that play, okay? Here's what I've got. I've got a five-year-old daughter and that's it. So I'm like, I'm right in the thick of this, okay, uh, myself. Uh, but I, I also was a youth pastor for 10 years. Uh, so that's like a different seat on the bus. But I've seen some crazy, right? So like, uh, it's still on the bus. So I'm going to be talking from that kind of, those experiences. Uh, but then really, here's the truth. We've got the word of God. And, and God's word has a lot to say about raising children, about parenting, about the next Generation. So I think we're going to find some helpful stuff in the text today. Now, I do want to add a disclaimer before we jump into this, uh, this, this passage and this topic, because we're going to talk today about uh, some ideals, like ideal principles, biblical principles for parenting. But here's the truth. All of us live in less than ideal circumstances. Anybody here live in the ideal If you are, like, come up here, take the face mic. You can preach this one, okay? Because, like, none of us live in ideal, okay? We're going to talk about some ideals, some biblical principles that are going to be applied to less than ideal circumstances. So, for for example, some of you, maybe you want kids, but for whatever reason, you haven't been able to. I mean, that was Hannah's story. She wanted kids, and the Lord had closed her womb. Some of you, uh, you have already had kids, uh, but they've grown up and, and you feel like maybe you've missed your, your opportunity with them. 
Or uh, maybe you're in a situation where literally the deck is stacked against you, literally, and you're just trying to, like the ideal is not even on your radar. You're just trying to keep alive. You're trying to survive. You're trying to keep your head above water. And, and, and so I, I just want you to know, I, I want to remind us that while the Bible will give us some real help uh, on how to parent, I, I, I just want you to know that where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. We say this all the time, but where, where the ideals of this life seem to be lacking, insert God's grace. God has grace for us in our less than ideal circumstances. And then also, if you do not have kids of your own, okay, you're going to have a tendency in a sermon like this to just be like, checking out, right? Pull out my phone, better see what ESPN's doing. Like, I'm just want to commend you, don't do that. Just commend to you not to do that because even if you don't have kids to parent right now in your home, uh, you might have a niece or a nephew. You, you might have grandchildren. Uh, you might have a friend's child in your life. Like God might have you t- to disciple and parent someone else's child from your position of influence in their life. So this is about parenting, yes, specifically, but all of us are called to be a part of disciple-making. I mean, some of the most important figures in my spiritual life have been men and women who themselves weren't even parents. They never had their own children, sometimes at all. And yet they parented me in my faith journey in significant and robust ways. So this, I just want to say, this is for all of us, okay? This is for us all. Now, uh, to 1 Samuel. We started this journey last week in 1 Samuel chapter 1, this sermon series, and we met a man named Elkanah. If you remember this, Elkanah and uh, his wife, Hannah, one of his wives, Hannah. Okay, and Hannah, uh, as we just said, she struggled with infertility. Okay, she was barren. Uh, And last week, before our story ended in in our sermon last week, at God's appointed time, in due time, and God's timing, she ends up conceiving and having a baby boy named Samuel. And what we're going to see is that Samuel will grow up to be a very important figure. I mean, he's the namesake of this book. Okay, this book isn't called First and Second David. Okay, it's First and Second Samuel. This guy is important and legitimate, and you will see why. We will spend the first 12 weeks of this sermon series just digging into his life, okay? So this guy is really important, but the question is, how do you become a big, God-fearing mover and shaker in the, the, in the history? You start as a child, and your upbringing plays into that. So parenting is what we're going to see in the text. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through most of the text, and then I'm going to extrapolate out some principles for parenting. So let's read our passage together. First Samuel chapter one, we're going to start in verse 21. Follow along with me. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Now, just pause for a second there. 
So Hannah, uh, if you remember last week, when she, before she was pregnant, before she conceived, when she was still in her deep distress and anguish, she prayed to the Lord, asked for a son, and made a vow. And that vow is what we call a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow essentially said that she would bring him at the time uh, post-weaning, which is about age three, okay? A child would be nursed by his mother for about the first three years and then would be weaned from his mother. And at that point, the Nazarite vow, she said, I will bring my child to uh, God's house, to the tabernacle at this time, and, uh, and he will be uh, lent to the Lord. He will be raised by the priests and essentially will be an adopted priest in the priesthood here at the tabernacle. And so, so this, is, uh, this is what's happening here, okay? Uh, she has the child, Samuel, and she uh, is uh, weaning him at age three, and now she is bringing him up to the house of the Lord at Shiloh to present him to the priests and essentially to hand off the parenting duties Uh, So let's keep going. Verses uh, 25 through 28. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli the priest. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives He is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Okay. Uh, Now you might think Hannah and Elkanah really didn't have much time to parent Samuel. I mean, three, maybe maximum four years, they had this boy under their roof. But uh, in this story, I think they give us great uh, principles, great markers for what biblical parenting ought to look like. Now, uh, what I want to give us is some, some of those things. This will not be an exhaustive list. All right, don't take these five things and be like, all right, I'm going to write them down, write a book. This is the be-all, end-all parenting book. Five things. Here you go. It's not that simple, okay? We're just going to find five things that we're going to see in the text today that I think are of some help for biblical uh, parenting. So uh, if you do take notes, write these things down. I think you have a better position in heaven if you do take notes, so just throw that out there. But uh, let me walk through my five principles of biblical parenting from this story. First, biblical parents are intentional. Biblical parents are intentional. Uh, I think this is in the text first in, in, in verse 22, uh, but, but what we see is Hannah had a plan of action. She had a plan. She, she's going to wean Samuel, and then she's going to bring him up to the house of the Lord with the offering, and then he will dwell there. She has this plan. She has this end in mind. She has an intentional parenting plan. Even if it's just for the first few years of his life, she knows what she's trying to accomplish. And really in our parenting, as we parent children, we have to be intentional with our parenting. Like we have to be thoughtful. We have to be intentional. You need to start with the end in mind. This isn't just in parenting. It's in all of life, but you need to have a plan. Okay. The truth is this. If you don't pick an end in mind, one will be picked for you. There will be an end to your parenting. It's just you have the choice to be intentional with it or not because unintentional choices will always have unintentional consequences. There always will be an end. There always will be a consequence. You just have to choose what level of intentionality you're going to put into this thing. I say it all the time. When you fail to plan, you plan to fail. We talked about this with disciplines 
We talk about this with work, with education, and the same is true with parenting. You need to be intentional. This is uh, all over the scriptures, okay? Joshua 24, uh, in Joshua 24, we find a call to the people of Israel to make an intentional decision about how they will raise their families. You, You might know this verse, I'll put it up on the screen. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You have to make a, an intentional decision. You have to make a choice how you want to parent and how you and your house will go. It has to be intentional. Now, let me just give a couple of maybe categories of intentionality. This isn't exhaustive, but I just thought of a couple of these this week. Um, Biblical parents are intentional with their boundaries. They're intentional with boundaries for their kids. What are your kids going to be allowed to do and not allowed to do? And and one of the hot button issues that we'll just address is uh, in parenting right now is the use of technology with kids, right? Okay, so um, let me just say this. Ordinary parents, they don't want to pry into their kids' lives. They don't want to pry. They, they want to make sure their kids have space. They want to make sure that their kids, like, let them do them. Like, let them live their lives a bit. Like, I call this free-range parenting. I just kind of, like, wander all over the place, aimlessly eating whatever they want, and you think that they're going to grow up to be, like, healthy, lean, well-fed individuals. No, it's not how it works. That is, free-range parenting is the worst idea in the history of the world. Okay, biblical parents, listen, ordinary parents, they don't want to pry. Biblical parents are intentional with their boundaries, specifically around technology. So now if you've got kids, if you, most of our families with teens were in the first service, but if you've got kids uh, who have a phone or a tablet or a device, uh, I just want to beg and implore with you, please, please know their phones. Like, know them. Know what apps they have on there. Have them explain, oh, what is that? How does that work? Oh, you're using Instagram? What does that do? Like, how does that, what are you seeing there? Use the safety measures that are, in, that are built into those softwares to pry into what they're looking at. Please, I'm imploring you to do that. Sometimes parents are like, it's just too difficult. I don't know how this thing works. Listen, parenting is difficult. Figure it out. Don't give them a a, a gateway to the most explicit world that they can imagine that they can look at in their bedroom. I mean, goodness, we're only just scratching the surface on studies about what technology is doing to developing minds and to children's minds. But I find it truly interesting that the people who are developing the apps and these programs for these devices will not let their kids have them. Talk about tech geniuses, they don't let their kids have these glowing rectangles because they're afraid of what they might do to their children. Please take a note of that. Now, I'm not saying don't give your kid technology at some point, but be intentional with this. Put some boundaries around this. A phone or a tablet to a child with no boundaries is like handing them a loaded gun. They can get anything they want. That is a dangerous thing. You would never do that in any other arena of parenting. Why would you do that with technology? Also, uh, 
I'll just say this, please, please know who your kids' friends are. Again, in fear of prying into our children's lives too much, uh, we, we sometimes don't know what's going on in our kids' lives, who they're hanging out with, who they're sleeping over at, like those sorts of things. But as a youth pastor, when I've worked with young adults, please listen to me. I have heard countless stories that go something like this. I was in the fifth grade. I stayed at a friend's house. And his older brother did fill in the blank. And I was in fourth grade, and when my, I was sleeping over at my friend's house, and when his parents went to bed. We jumped onto their desktop computer and we found fill in the blank. Man, I was in middle school when I got my first phone and I'm just like scrolling through things, just totally innocent. And then all of a sudden I started seeing things and I started clicking through things. And now I'm, I am hooked on this thing. Things that I never should have seen when I was in sixth or seventh grade. Okay. And, and this was like fourth, fifth, sixth grade, and I can't get, I can't unsee, I can't unexperience the things that I've experienced. And then I also hear all the time from young adults. I hear this from young adults all the time. Man, I wish my parents would have pried a little bit more. I didn't want them to do it then. I didn't want it then, but, but I wish now they would have just asked me some more questions, put a few more boundaries around me. Biblical parents are intentional with their boundaries. Another area of intentionality uh, beyond boundaries, biblical ba- uh, parents are also intentional with discipline. They're intentional with discipline. And I'm telling you, there's this fad. It's been going around for a long time. It's still going around with some parents who have been convinced that it is more important to let your child explore and figure out his or her identity than it is for you to train them up into maturity. And I fear that it has or is destroying a generation of kids. And I get it. Listen, I want want my daughter Harper to like me. I don't want her to just love me. I want her to like me. I want her to think I am cool. And she does because she's five, but she won't forever, right? But listen, God's first call on my life is to be her father. It's not to be her friend. His first call on me is to be daddy, not buddy. I want to be your friend. I want to be your buddy, but... That's not the primary call of a parent. My primary call is to have her best in mind, even if it makes me unpopular with her. That means that sometimes in her eyes, I will look like the enemy. It will. But we say it all the time. Love and discipline are actually synonymous It takes a higher degree of love to discipline my daughter for her own maturity and safety. It's loving to discipline our children. And and every parent knows that disciplining your kid is way harder than just letting them do whatever they want. It's way easier to just let your kid run free and wild than it is to actually implement and practice discipline. And so we're trying this at home, okay? We're trying to intentionally discipline our daughter, to discipline Harper, Uh, but it's difficult. So I've shared this story, but let me share it again. Uh, When Harper was three, 
So she's five now. She was three. Uh, we, we were starting to try and train her and discipline and things like this. So we had a rule. We have lots of rules, but we had a rule at our house. Hands are not for hitting. That's a book title. We read the book. We said, that's our rule. Okay, hands are not for hitting. Now, very often as a three-year-old, she would start hitting our dog. I don't know why. She'd just like go up and clobber the dog, okay? Uh, and we would say, Harper, Harper, hands are not for hitting, right? Like we'd reinforce this. And so we're, she's in training. At this point, she is in training. She didn't know when something was right or wrong all the time. And so when they don't know, you don't start disciplining them. It's always grace. It's always education at first. So I would say, okay, Harper, hands are not for hitting. And then if she would do it again, she'd go and clobber Betty again. Then she would go, we go, Harper, okay, look at my eyes. Don't hit the puppy. Okay, hands are not for hitting. And then if she did it a third time, this is what we would do. I would, I would get down on her level. I would be very clear. And I would say, Harper Ruth, if you hit the dog again, you will get a spanking. Okay, and I get the irony that we are threatening her with a hit for a hit, okay? I understand that, but just, you know, go with me, okay? But, but warnings were issued, Okay, uh, punishment was clearly communicated. She can't just say, I'm three, I don't know. She knows the rule at this point, okay? She knows the rule, and to break it again would be defiant disobedience, and we would actually discipline her. So here's what Harper did. She walked away. I thought, parenting of the year, right here. You know, strike three, she walks away, we're good. The dog is protected, okay? But she walks away, she finds a broom, She brings it back into the room and this is what she does. She looks at me and then she starts hitting the dog with the broom. And I'm like, dang it, I should have been more clear, right? Hands are, she's not using her hands. She's using a broom. Can I discipline her for this? I mean, I love her, but she is shady already. She's three. I mean, it's crazy. But hear me, we we give timeouts and and we... We take away privileges and, and man, we've, we've given her spankings. And listen, I know if you don't believe in that, like, that's okay. We know, we know who you are. Um, but it's because it's, listen, it's because we love her that we discipline her. It is. We have to be intentional with this. And this one's for free. This is just a free tip. Okay. Uh, When you're about to discipline your child, maybe a spanking or something like that. Don't go, Hey, uh, I really don't want to do this. Okay. I I don't enjoy this. This hurts me more than it hurts you, but, but God says I have to. So like, do you think that's going to stir up love and affection for Jesus in the heart of your child? Just please don't do that. Okay. Just please don't go that way. No, I, I actually, listen, this is going to sound sadistic, but it's not. I actually want to discipline Harper. Why? Because I am crazy about her. And I want it to go well for her. And when she breaks God's commands, she is no longer on the path that will lead to life and to joy. And so it is the best, most loving thing that I can do to help her get back onto that path. Biblical parenting is intentional. That's hard work, y'all, but that's a good one, okay? Uh, Number two, second point. Biblical parents prioritize their own discipleship. Biblical parents prioritize their own discipleship. I mean, all over 1 Samuel chapter one, this family 
is actively practicing their faith. They're actively, like they're going to make the offerings year after year. They're praying, they're worshiping, they're sacrificing, they're practicing their faith. And Elkanah's words in verse 23, I think are just so helpful. He he says, hey, you know what? Do whatever you want. If she wants to wean the child, do all this stuff. And then he ends his little phrase in verse 23 by saying, only may the Lord establish his word. Like his greatest goal is that God's word would be established and that they would be faithful in this. They are most, it seems to me that Hannah and Elkanah are most concerned about being faithful to God over and above any desire that they personally might have. Listen, it is out of our discipleship with God that we then disciple our children. See, ordinary parents... Ordinary parents are are Sunday Christians. They're Sunday morning Christians. Imagine their life is like a big wheel, like an old wagon wheel, and and, and their faith is just one of the spokes of many spokes on this wheel. And the spoke might be a job or or their friends or their softball league or their ski pass or their politics or whatever it might be. There's all these spokes spokes and Jesus is just one spoke among many spokes and therefore it carries the exact same weight as every other spoke in their life but biblical parents they know that the relationship their relationship with Jesus isn't a spoke on their wheel it's actually the hub Jesus their relationship with Christ is the hub of the wheel and all the other spokes of their life are held together by that Hub, and it's around which everything else turns. And I've seen this. I've seen this. I, I mean, listen, I, I just, I've had so many conversations with young adults whose story, story is something like this. I mean, I was raised in the church. I graduated and I went off to college. And, and man, almost immediately my faith was challenged. Whether it was in some sort of sin, to, challenged to like a sin and, and kind of prodigal son sort of run away from it, or it was challenged intellectually by some of my, maybe a professor or somebody. But either way, I, I found myself just questioning a lot at that moment. But then I remembered my mom. And my mom was up every morning reading her Bible when I got up. Or my dad would, would take sticky notes and write verses and hang them on my mirror when I'd get into my bathroom in the morning. Or, or my mom, when she packed my lunch, she would write a note, an encouragement, and, and put a scripture reference there and throw that in there. And that's what I remember, and that's what sustained me, and that's ultimately why I didn't run from my faith but stayed in my faith and why I'm here today. And that's what I want for my daughter. Like, I want Harper to remember that every morning when she wakes up, she comes downstairs and she finds me in my chair with my Bible open and my journal open, praying, reading scripture. That's the very foundation of my life. I want her to remember every night that we prayed with her. I, I want her to remember that we didn't just talk about Christianity with our mouths, but that we lived it, that it was the center. It was the hub of our entire family. You know, this is why the, the disciplines that we talked about last year, the discipline plans, this is why these are so important for you, but also for your family. The things that you do will be reflected back to you in your children. And listen, I did youth ministry uh, long enough to know that the stats aren't good. 
Like I had parents who came to me often and who would say, Chris, how, how do we prevent our kids from leaving their faith once they move away from home? Like, how do I keep them from graduating from their faith? And, and here's the hard truth. You can't. You can't prevent that. You can't ensure that. You can't. But there is a best practice Okay, the best way to ensure that your kids are disciples of Jesus is if you are a disciple of Jesus. The best thing that you can do for your child's faith is to deepen your own faith. It's not to get them in Sunday school and get them in the best youth group and get them all the right. It's you. You deepening yourself will be the best thing for the deepening of your children. The very best. Biblical parents prioritize their own discipleship. Number three, I'm gonna speed it up, okay? Number three, biblical parents are consistent. They're consistent. Uh, I see this in verse 28 specifically, but um, I think the integrity shown by Hannah and Elkanah to actually fulfill the Nazarite vow that they made uh, to actually lend Samuel to the Lord as long as he lives, I find that astounding, to actually do that. Their actions and their lives are consistent with what they say they believe. What a rarity. I mean, what a rarity. Think how tempting it would have been for this young family to just keep Samuel back as their own son. I mean, no one except for God knows about the vow. We get no indication that anybody knows. Eli doesn't know. We have no biblical indication that anybody knows except for Hannah, Elkanah, and the Lord. And so why, I mean, the temptation to hold him back, to raise him, even after, I mean, imagine bringing a three-year-old to hand off to the priest. I mean, how difficult would this have been? Consistency will always be a constant struggle in parenting, to actually do what you say you're going to do, to do what you actually say you believe. Um, here's uh, this is hard for me. One day uh, I'll t- share a story. One day I was watching TV. Okay, just sitting in my uh, living room watching sports or something, and Harper just shows up in the room and is just buzzing all around, like just you know spinning around, dancing, leaping. Okay, just making noise, being loud, getting in the way, like suplexing me, like just kind of just coming over and hurting me. She just does that, you know, like essentially being a child, being a human child. That's what she was doing. Um, and she got a hold of a ball or something and it's just kind of tossing it around, throwing it around the room. It got away from her because she's not good at throwing yet. All right, so uh, she's not gonna be a pitcher anytime soon, but it got away from her and it landed on our TV stand, which has like some picture frames, some glass things, you know, things that you shouldn't have around children, but they make your house look nice, so we have them. But uh, hits, the ball hits them, they start falling, collapsing, things are breaking. And, and, and I responded just, just like this. I was like, hey, that's it. What, what, are you, what are you doing? That's, that's enough. You know better than to throw the ball in the house. Don't throw your stuff. You're going to break something. I just, I just lost my cool because she was interrupting my TV watching, right? But I just kind of lost it for a moment. And, and Harper kind of slinks away and I'm just kind of fuming. But I, listen, I, I'm justifying it in my mind because I'm like, she knows the rules. She broke the rule. I'm disciplining her. I'm being a good parent. You know, I'm just doing this. And then Marcy, my sweet wife, who, um, who's really good at, being the Holy Spirit at times, uh, in, a, in a good way, but she just kind of calmly says, hey, 
I don't think that was your best. And now I'm to her, right? So, but I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, like, what do you mean? She was being crazy. She was breaking things. I'm just living out the, the house rules. I'm being the disciplinarian here. And she's just calm. She's just like, um, I think you might want to redo on that one. So I need a little time to kind of, you know, get things under control. And so I calm myself down. And then I go upstairs because Harper's playing in her playroom or something. And I kind of call her over after realizing that Marcy is right, like always, right? But, uh, but I, I, I get Harper over and I come down to her level and I go, hey, sweetie, um, the way I responded to you for throwing that ball, man, that was not right. Like that's, that's not how God would want me to act. I, I am so sorry. Harper, will you forgive me? And Harper goes, Sure. And then just like turns around and walks away. And I'm like, listen, this is a big deal. Like I'm thinking, hey, this is supposed to be one of those moments that I'm going to share in a sermon someday, right? Like where don't, don't, doesn't asking for forgive. This is a great parenting moment. Like, oh my gosh, what a waste of a moment, Harper. Um, but, but then as she's walking away, she's like kind of walking back to her playroom. She gets halfway down the hall and she turns and she goes, hey, daddy, would you forgive me for throwing my ball in the room? I go, I will. Yeah, sweetie, I forgive you. She's like, okay. And then she goes, what? we've never talked about it again. She was just totally cool. Listen, consistency matters. Our kids are going to listen to what we say, but they're going to do what we do. They're going to listen to what you say, but their actions are going to be predicated on modeling the behavior that is demonstrated to them. Consistency matters. Number four, biblical parents prioritize church. Biblical parents prioritize church. Now, uh, some of you may not like me for this one, and that's okay. Actually, the, the, the reality of this point is that uh, most of you are feeling okay about this because you're here, right? Like the or you're online. Like the people who need to hear this aren't tuned in right now. So this is a hard one, but, but just, just bear with me here. Biblical parents prioritize church. Elkanah and Hannah went up year after year after year. They were faithful to practice their faith always. And this is kind of tied to prioritizing our own discipleship. But, but, the, but listen, the church, God's people, we are meant to come alongside you in both your discipleship and in the discipleship of your children. And again, when I was a youth pastor, kids' parents, they'd come to me and they'd come wondering, hey, why aren't my kids interested in coming to church? Right, like why, why don't they want to go to church? Why, one just went off to college. They don't even want to come home to come to church with me for Easter. Why aren't they doing this? Why don't they want to do church anymore? And, and more often than not, okay, not always, not always, this is not a rule, but like very often I would know that family. I would know them and I would know their church involvement level and it was minimal. Once a month, once every couple of months, whenever it's convenient, never belonging, never serving, never taking it all too seriously. And hear me, if you don't take church seriously, why would your kids ever? I mean, 
This is why, as a church, we invest so much into youth ministry, into kids ministry. This is why we pay Kyle and Whisper to kind of lead these teams of volunteers to, to partner with you as you disciple your kids. Again, church cannot be an afterthought. It must be a priority. We want, I, I say this almost every Sunday when we pray before people start showing up for our kids' ministry. I, I always pray, Lord, I want our kids to love Jesus and I want our kids to love the church. I want them to love Jesus. I better if I'm a pastor, right? But I also don't want them to feel like this is a begrudging submission to come to. I want them to have friends. I want them to love being a part of the body. This is why the church exists. Finally, number five, biblical parents prioritize prayer. My manuscript says biblical patients prioritize prayer. That's a typo, okay? Biblical parents prioritize prayer. Last week, if you remember Hannah's prayer, pouring out her soul before the Lord. Today in our text in verses 26 and 27, she reminds Eli of that prayer. Hey, this child right here that I'm presenting to you, I prayed for this boy. I prayed for this boy long before I ever conceived. And then next week, we're gonna take a deep dive into Hannah's prayer life in chapter two. We'll get there, but um, here's, here's the point. Prayer is the real work of parenting. Prayer is the real work of parenting. Biblical parents prioritize prayer because biblical parents know that it is only by God's grace that our kids would ever love or serve Jesus. Biblical parents prioritize prayer. You cannot, listen, you cannot, no matter how hard you try, you cannot control the outcome of whether your kids love Jesus or don't. I have met parents, no parents, who were incredible. They weren't perfect, okay? But maybe for all intents and purposes, they did all of these things well. They tried to biblically parent their children, and yet they have a prodigal who has not yet returned. And then on the other side, I have talked with enough young people who have grown up in the most insane and messy situations and God, in his grace, made their path straight to him. There is no silver bullet. Put these five things into practice? Absolutely. But it's not the silver bullet. This is why we must prioritize prayer. This is the real work of parenting. It's the thing that we can all do. We can all do this. Listen, there are a lot of people in our church, I'm sure in this room today, online today, who uh, are sitting here, who are following Jesus today because of the faithful prayers of moms and of dads, of grandpas and of grandmas, of, of Sunday school teachers and youth leaders faithfully praying, oh Lord, bring my son, save my son, bring my daughter to the faith. Lord, save them at a young age. These are the prayers of God's people for our children. And this is also why this is a parenting message. And it's so much more. It's so much more because all of us are called to this. Yeah, this is for parents, but all of us are called to be a part of discipling the next generation of believers. So you could take all five of these points and you could swap out parents with disciple makers. Disciple makers are intentional. 
Disciple makers prioritize their own discipleship. Disciple makers are consistent. Disciple makers prioritize church community. And disciple makers prioritize prayer. Church, this is what we are called to. It's actually the mission statement of our church. The mission of Fathom Church is that we would glorify God by making disciples. We want to see more disciples made. So let me end with this. You are going to fail at this. How's that feel? You are going to fail at this. If you're a parent, probably today, maybe this week, definitely this month, you are going to fail at this. Maybe you feel like you already have. Listen to me. You're going to fail at this because parenting exposes our need of a savior as much if not more than anything else in life. These are ideals, right? These are principles, but we're going to fail at this. There are no, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. There's no such thing, but, but when you fail, may you press into the mercy and grace of God for you as you fail. The mark isn't perfection. The mark is faithfulness. The mark isn't get everything right. The mark is perseverance. Because you have a heavenly father who is perfect. He's good and he's crazy about you. Anything that you feel for your kids or that you feel for those who you want to see discipled in and become Christians, any love that you feel for them, man, that is just a fraction of how he feels for you, of the love that he feels for you. And if you are a parent, you know, you can't even fathom that there's more love than what you feel for your children. But 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So how do we parent biblically? How do we disciple biblically? We do so by knowing God's love for us and then loving out of that. By feeling and experiencing the reality of Christ's love for you and then letting that overflow all over the kids in your life, the disciples in your life. May the Lord help us in this seemingly impossible endeavor. Love you, church. Let's pray together. Father, this is just a... It's, a, it's an important topic to discuss. It's a hard topic at times. It brings up pains and it brings up regrets and it brings up challenge, but it also, it also stimulates and it also gives hope and it also um, allows for us to see you in a different light. It's not by accident, I think, that, that we are considered your children and you are considered our father. That the family, that the familial unit would be the primary metaphor for how we relate to you as our father. And so, Lord, as we strive to, to parent, as we strive to disciple, God, would we have eyes to see our children, these, these young people in the same light? You have eyes to see and hearts that are soft to recognize that there is a better way to parent than just hoping it goes well. But Lord, it starts with trusting in your love for us and letting that love overflow to others. So Father, I do pray that you would give us grace in this. 
Many of us have regrets. Many of us have failures. And many of us have many more failures to come in parenting. And yet may we lean all the more heavy into your love and mercy. Deepen us in this, Father. Give us grace in this, Father. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.